enough of Pete's time. We just need to get him up. But you're very, very welcome, Peter. Yeah, Pete, I've just met Pete for the first time tonight, so. Uh, we're, but he did give me a little taste of a little insight into what he's going to share, and it sounds great. So we, we want to bring him up. Uh, we weren't very good at briefing him, so he's doing a bit of adjusting. So he's going to really need you to help him. We'll go through hopefully till about quarter to nine or something like that. We'll have a break. Um, but uh, you're very welcome. Let me pray for you, and we'll jump straight into it. <coughs> Uh, now, okay, let's pray. Father, thank you that you uh, have put us in a fascinating world, and there's so much uh, going on all around us that just intrigues us and scares us a bit and makes us uncertain and, and turns us to you in faith and sometimes turns us away from you as well in temptation. But we ask that you would use uh, Peter now to open up uh, insights for us, open up your mind and your word to us as we just think about the world that we live in, the relevance of the gospel and how to get a better handle on just what it is that you call us to be and to do. So I pray for him and I pray for each of us that you would just be with us now and guide us by your Holy Spirit and enable us to bring some joy to your own heart as well as ours, for we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Thanks okay. So much for coming. Is uh, your recorder going? Whoever oh, put you. it here, yeah, don't forget to uh, get that going. I'm also uh, recording, so we've got bells and, bra- uh, and braces. I've got a, a podcast channel uh, which you can track down if you track down my website, uh, which you want to jot it down. is simply uh, my name. It's www. Peter S. Williams. Uh, the S is for Stephen, if you were wondering. Uh, Peter S. Williams. Dot com, and there you'll find my website where access to a bunch of free material, including my podcast channel, my YouTube channel, um, various papers, uh, even a page of some of my uh, amateur compositions, uh, if you like that sort of thing. Um, I uh, know of Tony Watkins of old. Uh, I came to Southampton 13 years ago uh, to work for the Damaris Trust uh, for a year and see how it went, and I'm still here. And uh, as you know, Tony has just uh, uh, moved on from Demoris Trust UK, although he re- retains an association through our Norwegian uh, branch uh, in uh, Gimla Collin in Norway. Um, so uh, Tony and I have uh, had the pleasure of uh, collaborating on various things uh, in Demaris uh, on the subject of uh, contemporary popular culture and the biblical worldview and um, those two throwing uh, mutually beneficial light upon one another. Um, for those of you who spotted that I am wearing a Doctor Who t-shirt, uh, and Tony and I were co-authors along with uh, uh, Steve Couch of a book in 2005 called Back in Time, A Thinking Fan's Guide to Doctor Who. And uh, later on this evening, we will uh, be looking a little bit at some Daleks. Uh, so you can look forward to that. <laughs> uh, let me uh, get my uh, brain in order, because uh, as I was saying, I... I um, 
uh, was expecting to do the same material twice over in two different slots. And I've had an extended slot, but fortunately the PowerPoint that I have has more material than the handout that I've given you has. Uh, so I apologise for the fact that in the second half there's no handout uh, available, uh, but you can uh, jot down some notes on the back of it, and I could even uh, email through some stuff uh, through and they can print it off uh, for you for next week, presumably, if that would be uh, useful. So I've entitled this, as you can see, Viewing Spiritual Worlds uh, Through Film. And um, film is here uh, as um, a, 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 a preeminent modern form of uh, storytelling, a preeminent modern form of shaping people's spirituality uh, and their worldviews. Uh, and we'll use that as a uh, applied way of thinking about the importance of spirituality and worldviews. But I'm going to give you a general tool of uh, a, a practical definition of spirituality. And then we'll think a little bit about the place of worldviews uh, within that definition. And then we'll apply it uh, to thinking about um, what we can glean from some film clips that we can discuss on our tables and then have feedback uh, about. Uh, but uh, you may as well be applying the tool uh, of the definition that we'll look at to thinking about um, a friend of yours and their worldview and spirituality as applying it to a film or a TV program or um, a, the lyrics of a song uh, in the hit parade at the, at the time. So it's a, a sort of general purpose tool and we'll apply it in the realm of film. And then after the break, uh, we'll spend some time thinking about the, the meaning and significance of monsters uh, within uh, the film genre. And that's how I smuggle Doctor Who in. <laughs> uh, and even though it is a TV programme of course they did make uh, a couple of films in the 1960s of Doctor Who with Daleks in so I, I still managed to get them under, under the criteria of film monsters you see. Uh, so here we go let's um, start off by, by talking about spirituality and uh, Fritz Lang's 1927 film uh, Metropolis a landmark of uh, German uh, cinema, a landmark of science fiction uh, cinema as well. Uh, I've spent the last few years with an ongoing um, sort of research project um, clustered around thinking about the concept of spirituality and applying that in, in various areas uh, from film analysis to thinking about the nature of education. Uh, and I was watching the latest uh, Blu-ray release of the, the fullest uh, cut of Metropolis. Because unfortunately, when it was released, it was then cut. And over the years, various bits have been lost. And uh, film archivists keep finding new bits and trying to splice them in and trying to restore the film and trying to work out the, the fullest storyline. And I think the, the latest release of Metropolis does make the storyline a lot more understandable than it has been uh, in the past. And it suddenly kind of clicked with me what this film was about and why there is a particular quotation used at, both at the beginning and at the end of the film. Uh, and that uh, quotation is here at the bottom there. The mediator between head and hands must be the heart that the mediator between head and hands must be the heart. The film opens with that quote. Um, I won't, uh, I'll just very briefly mention that the, that the plot involves, it's really a film about the politics 
uh, of uh, a society in which there are the haves who kind of rule and live in a a sort of garden of delights in the overground and the have-nots who are the subjugated working masses who work in these terrible underground factories and we'll see one of those in a clip uh, in a minute. And there's a whole sort of um, semi-religious sort of messianic thing going on uh, with the the saintly uh, Maria and uh, here we have uh, the oligarch of the city and his son uh, John Anderson who... um, Uh, discovers about the plight of the working masses uh, because he falls in love with Maria, who's sort of acting as a sort of John the Baptist figure, uh, a sort of spokesman for the the, the masses, and saying, predicting that there will come this figure who will uh, sort of bring uh, harmony uh, between the workers and the state. And there's a sort of uprising in the film that's engineered uh, by an evil genius scientist, isn't always the way, uh, and a robot copy of Maria uh, in a uh, a very famous robot that you can see is an influence upon such uh, sci-fi greats as C-3PO from Star Wars. Um, (laughs) And uh, one thing leads to another, but at the end of the film, just when you think uh, everything's going to hell, literally in a handbasket, the head of the workers' union is brought together with the oligarch of the state by the son who does bring about reconciliation uh, between the working classes and the upper classes. So it's all about like, a class struggle and so on. That's what the film's about. And then we have, again, at the end of the film, this quote, the mediator between head and hands must be the heart. And I suddenly thought, aha, that is exactly talking about the definition of spirituality that I've been working out in the last couple of years. Because I've worked out that I reckon that a really useful definition of spirituality is this. That it is about the union, the integration of your head and your heart and your hands, uh, to put it in a Baptist three-point sermon alliteration kind of a way. (laughs) <laughs> the integration of your head and your heart and your hands is your spirituality. Um, or you could say uh, your beliefs, how you think about things, but particularly your world view, uh, how you would answer uh, the sort of basic philosophical questions about the really important subjects like what's ultimate reality, how do we know things? Is there a difference between right and wrong? And how do we know? Um, what is a human being? Um, is there life after death? Those kind of big questions of life, the universe, and everything. So your worldview beliefs, uh, your attitudes, uh, not just here talking about the heart in terms of your emotional, emotive responses to things, but thinking of it more in terms of your your attitudinal responses, the attitudes that you adopt towards what you believe about reality, Um, the choices and commitments that you make on the basis of what you believe about reality to be true and false. And the conjunction of your worldview beliefs and the attitudinal responses you take towards those things leads you to act, to behave in the world in a certain way. So if you believe that there is a God and you have a positive attitudinal response to God, that might well lead you to bothering spending some time praying to God. 
if you believe there is a God and you have a very negative attitudinal response to him, like the demons that James say, believe but tremble, then you probably won't spend much of your time praying. You see how that just sort of flows through naturally. And there's a sort of organic structure here of your beliefs and attitude leading uh, to actions, such that a, as the definition at the bottom there, and slightly longer terminology says, the spirituality is a way of relating to reality. Your spirituality is about relationship, relationship that you have to everything, to yourself, to, the, to other people, to the world around you, to whatever you think of as ultimate reality. It's your way of relating to reality through your worldview beliefs, coupled to your attitudes leading to your behaviour. Now that becomes a self-reinforcing kind of feedback loop. So you could diagram it as a circle like this. And to use other, other biblical terminology, you could cut it up between uh, faith and works. So you have uh, faith's beliefs about things coupled to faith's attitudes. Uh, you believe that there is a God. You put your trust in him. You have faith in God, as well as faith, uh, the, the belief that there is a God. You have the, the belief in God. And that leads you to act that out in, in works, in biblical terminology. Uh, but because you spend your time doing things like praying, reading the Bible, going to church and so on, that, of course, tends to reinforce your beliefs and your attitudes, which reinforces your actions, which reinforces your belief. So it becomes a self-reinforcing kind of feedback loop. And I think that is true of, of any spirituality. This, although I'm using some biblical language, is a very generalized definition of spirituality. I would say that everybody has a spirituality. You know, Richard Dawkins has a spirituality. He has beliefs about things being true and false. He has certain attitudes towards what he thinks is real in the world. And he takes actions, he behaves on the basis of those things. It's just that different people fill out this generic structure with different beliefs. We may overlap more or less with other people's beliefs, but there are differences in belief. Differences and overlaps in attitude, differences and overlaps in actions as well. Now, I wasn't the first person to get to this kind of way of thinking about spirituality. Um, I realised pretty soon that Jesus had got there before me. Um, uh, he taught, of course, that true spirituality means loving God through him with all your heart take that in the, the attitudinal sense, and with all your mind, including, of course, your worldview, and with all your strength, i.e., what you do. Um, the Mark 12.30, referencing back to Deuteronomy 6.5, um, it's put in slightly different ways in, in the different Gospels, and it's interesting comparing and contrasting them. What he is, of course, basically saying is, love God with everything you are. Uh, but I don't think uh, it is straining uh, the biblical text too much to put it into uh, these uh, three categories. So Christian spirituality means loving God with all of your 
beliefs, attitudes, actions, and loving your neighbour as yourself in that context. Other spiritualities will differ somewhat, although there will, of course, be some overlaps. And once you have this kind of head, heart, hands thing in mind, you see it popping up um, all over uh, the place uh, in Scripture. Uh, So this is a fascinating example. I think this is from Acts 2.37, Pentecost. Uh, Peter has just given the first uh, evangelistic sermon after Pentecost. And we're told by Luke that when the people heard this, i.e. when they took on board the beliefs that Peter was communicating about who Jesus was and what had happened to him recently. And particularly, I think, the indication is when when those people believed those truth claims about Jesus, about the resurrection. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. That is, their attitude was one of a positive response. Their attitude wasn't, oh, that's interesting fact, so what? You know, oh yeah, I'll store that away for the next pub quiz. Their attitude was, good grief, we need to do something about this. What should we do? You know? And they said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? So their beliefs and their heart response led to them wanting to do something about it. Do feel free, as I'm going through, to um, stick a hand up and and interrupt and ask any clarifying questions and so on. Here's just another couple of um, Bible verse examples to show that this kind of concept of spirituality, although it's general, I think is deeply biblically rooted. Um, The reason for that, of course, is I think Christianity is true and God really did make people in his image. And as such, we, we function in a certain way that God created us to function. And this definition of spirituality, um, at least fairly accurately, uh, captures the way in which people just work. (laughs) So this is Paul in Colossians 3, 15 to 17. He says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Let the word, the, the logos, the rationality, the communication of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with wisdom about the thinking about it and so on. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. So, you could uh, enumerate examples um, till the cows come home, uh, but I'll stop with those. I think I've done enough to, to show that this generic description of spirituality at least maps onto uh, a biblical concept of spirituality, um, but that you need to take into account the, the differences of beliefs, attitudes, and uh, actions between spiritualities, as well as, of course, taking a, into, into account the overlaps, because we are all created in God's image. So, one way of applying this definition is to think about films and to have it in mind when you're watching telly or whatever. And you could apply it to the characters in the film as a way of practicing thinking about this. 
Um, as I say, you might be uh, applying this to thinking about your, your neighbor, your friends, your family members. Um, you might be applying it to film because you want to apply it uh, to film, uh, as we do in Demaris Trust. But this is just a way of uh, getting us used to thinking in these terms, as it were. So there are sort of standard questions that you might want to pose, and we've got this on your handout, to characters in a film. And you might think of it in terms of, if I were the actor, if I were the actor having to play that character, asking the standard actorly questions, you know, what's my motivation in this scene? The character has some beliefs about reality. Beliefs about the big questions particularly look for. They have some attitudes. What does this character value? Who do they love? Who do they hate? Um, what do they value or not put value uh, against? And as a consequence, how do they act? Uh, who does what in this film? How do they go about doing it? What's their goal? What are they trying to achieve? What are they... What lengths are they prepared to go to in order to overcome the obstacle that the scriptwriter has put between them and their goal in order to create some drama for us? And indeed, um, although in some films you will find characters having discussions about what's your worldview, so on, usually it's Japanese anime, science fiction or whatever, um, our route into thinking about a character's spirituality in, in most cases is more going to be a case of looking at how they behave, um, working out about their attitudes to things. You know, we get that through their, their acting, their use of body language as, as well as the words that the scriptwriter has given them to use, the actions that they are given to perform, how they go about performing them, and so on. And then digging, sort of archaeologist-like, digging down from, oh, here's how they're behaving, here's how I think their attitudes are, to, well, what must their beliefs be, therefore? How, how are their beliefs being reflected in what they're, what they're doing. Um, now, of course, this can be a complex and uncertain business, just as it can be in life. Um, the ideal of a spirituality, remember I was talking about the integration of your head and your heart and your hands. The ideal is a consistency amongst your beliefs. And a consistency between your beliefs and your attitudes and your actions. But as we all know from the inside out, of course, people are not always consistent. Uh, there are tensions within us. Um, so we can have conflicting beliefs and we can do things that conflict with our beliefs and so on. Um, so um, it is uh, an art, a skill, uh, to be able to... Um, assess characters, assess people, think about them, think about ourselves, 
um, even if we have some useful conceptual kind of handholds in the background to help us start organising our thoughts. Um, that is useful, but it is um, step one of the process, isn't it? So you can think about the characters in the film. There's another level that you can think about things in, in films. You can think about the level of the makers of the film. And again, this is complicated because film is such a collaborative project. Lots of different people with their own individual spiritualities collaborate to make a film. And films can have more or less of a single vision in them. Um, film critics will often talk about um, auteur films, a film auteur, the sort of director who really puts his stamp on a film. The sort of film that says, you know, from a story idea by Fred, written by Fred, directed by Fred, with special effects by Fred, and the music was composed by Fred, and he did let his mate help out on camera, you know. <laughs> uh, an auteur uh, film, that kind of film is more likely to have a unity of vision and, and message to it, uh, perhaps, than the latest blo Hollywood blockbuster. But nonetheless, you can think about spirituality at the level of the makers of the film. What are their beliefs about things like good and evil, justice, truth, beauty, hope, love, etc.? Um, what are their attitudes? Uh, how is this film trying to make you feel? How is this film trying to make you feel about what? And how does it go about doing it? Is it... Is it the music in the scene that is really affecting your mood? Just, just think, what would this scene in the film be like if the soundtrack were Housewife's Choice? That would radically... Oh, thank you. <laughs> That would radically alter the, 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 the mood of several scenes from Alien, if that were the, you know. Um, <laughs> is it the lighting? Is it the, the colour palette? Is it the fact that the director uh, has chosen to make every other episode of The Killing set at night in the rain? <laughs> you feel really soggy by the end, end of about series two of the, of the Killing, I tell you. And... and in terms of actions, of course, what, what filmmakers have to make choices. Um, what do I show the viewer? What do I not show the viewer? How do I show it to them? Do I cut from colour to black and white at this point? Do I cut from 2D to 3D at this point in a film? You know, Tron 2 did that at the beginning. Started out in 2D. And when he goes into the computer world, Tron goes into 3D, the modern equivalent of Wizard of Oz. It starts out in black and white. She goes into the land of Oz. Colour. <laughs> Those kind of uh, directorial choices, what words, sounds, music, do we hear, not hear, etc. How much of the monster do we see when? Um, the correlation between how much of the monster we see and how scary the monster is, of course, <laughs> is, uh, you know, inverse or whatever. 
because uh, once you see it, you, you recognise, oh yes, I can see the zip, you know, down the, the guy, creature from the Black Lagoon, or Cybermen in the early days. You know. <laughs> so there are these two levels that we, we can think about things. So, we can try and kind of multitask about those uh, at the same time. Well, let's have a, a go. And let's start with, uh, as promised, a clip from Metropolis. I like starting in, in uh, silent film because there's no script to uh, distract our attention. Uh, we will have to focus on what the characters do, what the filmmakers uh, do in terms of showing us the action and how they do it. Um, here's the scene where... Uh, John stumbles for the first time into the oppression of the working masses as they work upon their giant machines in the underground factories. It is, uh, I think, still today a really powerful scene. And as you watch it, and you have on your sheets there the, the, the grid. Um, yep, I'll just wave this in front of people for a moment. So we have here the, the grid beliefs, attitudes and actions, and whether we're thinking about the character uh, or the, uh, the maker. Um, let's think on this one about the, 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 the characters in the film, first off. Uh, and then we might talk a little bit about, the, about how the, the filmmaker's doing things. But think in terms of, of John, as he stumbles into this factory and sees the scene that unfurls before us. Um, what are his... Uh, as far as you can work them out from what you're shown, um, his beliefs, his attitudes, his actions, uh, and then we'll have a, a group discussion around the tables about your findings, uh, and then we'll get some, some feedback uh, to the whole group. Okay? Does that sound fun? So, here we go uh, with uh, Fritz Lang's 1927 uh, Metropolis. So, let's uh, give you five minutes to have a chat around, the, around your table, and particularly thinking in terms of spirituality of John here. And if you do feel like multitasking, I might ask you some questions about what the filmmaker's doing uh, to us uh, in the scene as well when we come to, to do the feedback. But start out with that grid and thinking uh, about John. Okay, great. I think I've heard some um, very pertinent and interesting thoughts uh, bubbling up from the tables. So, uh, let's start um, with the actions on Work Our Way Back. As I, I, I say, particularly in a silent film, what you really get is action or inaction, as someone was just mentioning of character. Um, so what have we got uh, uh, in terms of, of what this character actually does in this, this, this scene? What, what does he do? What happens to him? He's an observer who's shocked by what he's seen but doesn't feel like, or he does not intervene. Um, right. Okay. So he's, he's there as an observer and actually most of the clip that I showed you was kind of us seeing things through his eyes, wasn't it? As he kind of has this, this vision, whether that's because he's got concussed from the blast of the, the furnace or, or whatever. And I, I, I really want to pick up on the comment you, you made about it at the end. He, he doesn't 
do anything about what he sees. He's just witnessed this horrible industrial accident and there are all these men stumbling around and helping each other on stretches and carrying off people and so on. And what does he do? He kind of stands at the back going, you know, okay, he, he might be a little bit concussed, one could argue, maybe, but he seems very inactive uh, in the scene. Yes. Yeah. So it's, he's stunned. That's a good way of putting it, isn't it? He's, he's not only stunned physically by what happened to him in the scene, he's, he's stunned emotionally, and that must be because he's stunned at a level of beliefs. He wasn't expecting this. So he, we can work out that this character had some beliefs about the world that have just been torn to shreds by what he's seen. Yes. Okay, so he, he is he is showing a concern and a, and a clashing even in his sort of stunned inactivity. Uh, and of course this is what then does launch him into action in, in the rest of the film. Um, one, one thing very interesting that happens fairly soon after this is he goes and he, he, he changes places with one of the workers who's working on a, a machine that for some reason seems to consist of a big circle of light bulbs and two levers. And when two light bulbs light up and the guy has to put the levers to where the light bulbs are. And, like he's, and he's doing, doing this for like eight hour shift. you know. And he changes places with him and he ends up at the end of the shift half dead on the machine. <laughs> so you can see what use of, of symbology is as uh, this sort of Christ figure taking the place of the worker suffering in their places. All, all of that is kind of being played with uh, in the film. So he does get involved because of this. But yeah, he's, he's too kind of shocked and stunned and so on. But you're right, so we can, we can pretty quickly dig down from you know, how he's behaving, what we see through his eyes, to his emotions, his emotional response, um, the beliefs that he used to have that must now be shattered, that have now been replaced with other beliefs about how the world he lives in is structured, and, and what is his response to what he now discovers about the world. I think there were some good comments uh, from the table over here um, about, <laughs> here, about evil... And his attitudes towards towards things. Well, what he sees in that the machine turning into a being mm. is eating the workers. Betray, seems to betray quite a bit. Yes. Um, in a sense, he sees. Yeah. Well, he sees it as evil, isn't it? Mm. So it's some monster. This machine is some sort of yeah. monster, almost living. That's. It's living off the workers. It's, yeah. Yeah, it's devouring them. It's his vision, of course. And the, what, the one word that we get in the clip, Moloch, Moloch. Being translated is. <laughs> it is the demon worshipped by the Canaanites, who slaughtered their children in the fire. Mm, of 
the, the, the god of the Canaanites. Um, and they sacrifice their children in the, in, in the fire. Um, so that's an old, old Testament uh, reference. And that, it is significant that he, that's what his mind conjures up in his, in his shock. And what that says about his view, you could think about what that says about his view of, of human nature versus the view of human nature of those running the city. Uh, about the value of human nature. And you, uh, absolutely, picking up on, you know, he sees this as evil. Clearly, John is not a cultural moral relativist. <laughs> he doesn't say, oh, oh, well, that's, that's how this society works. You know, that's what's right around here. <laughs> you know, I don't seem to like that. Maybe I should move to a different society that has different de- decisions about value. You know? There are, there are moral differences, but it's not like one of us is right and one of us is wrong about that, how people should be treated. No, no he clearly thinks there's a, there's a fact of the matter about how tr- people should be treated, and this ain't it. And it repulses him. Yeah. Excellent. Very good. So we dig through from the actions and attitudes uh, through to beliefs, changes in beliefs, and so on. Um, I do really respect, I really love the, the, the cinematography uh, of this. Uh, and it's still being so powerful for, for a clip from a silent film with very, you know, to our eyes, kind of ham, stagey kind of acting. And, oh, I'm, you know, that sort of, I am overcome kind of <laughs> oh, uh, acting that he's doing. And the fact, the fact that I still, you know, the hairs on my neck still stand up <laughs> when the vision of Moloch comes, I, I think speaks volumes about the filmmaker and the, the way in which even they use the camera moves. You notice when there was the explosion, we had this wonderful, very brief camera move. Um, we were looking at John and we had a, a kind of zoom in on him. But it wasn't a nice kind of smooth, oh yeah, let's just let's zoom in on John. It was as if someone had uh, taken the camera, put it on a chain attached to the, the, the gantry up there somewhere, and had gone like, go, let go. <laughs> and the camera went, Bleh! So that our stomachs at that moment, as we watch it, kind of go, Bleh! So that we feel the explosion as viscerally uh, as, as uh, the filmmaker can make us uh, with his available technology. So let's uh, have another clip, another black and white uh, silent uh, clip at least uh, from uh, All Quiet on the Western Front from 1930, uh, an American made film but about uh, World War I from the point of view of some young German students who uh, caught up in the patriotism of their school, uh, enlist in the German army, uh, and go through hell in the trenches of World War I. And I'm going to show you a famous uh, battle scene from All Quiet on the Western Front. Um, now, I, I, I think carefully about the clips that I, I choose to show in churches... And also, part, part of the fact that I use some silent clips, as I often do this with, with um, uh, 
audiences in Eastern Europe and so on who are not using English as a, as a first language, so we don't get the English in the way by showing a scene that doesn't have any in. Um, but there is some violence in this scene. That is because it is reflecting the realities of World War I. Um, it is not gratuitous violence, though. Uh, and there is uh, a difference, an important difference. Uh, and as we watch this, I've been thinking, I think in terms of your grid, let's think uh, primarily in terms of the filmmaker this time, rather than any of the, the individual characters in here. That you, It will become obvious to you that we're particularly following one character on the German side in this, who, who appears several times. But um, let's think in terms of what is the filmmaker saying to us? What is, what is he getting us to, to feel, and um, that is, in this instance, pretty much what this character that we're following is feeling. There's a, uh, a consistency between the two anyway. Um, as I say, violent but not gratuitously so. And uh, you could keep this question in the back of your mind. I, I, I haven't told you a great deal about this film, and if you haven't seen it, uh, you could ask yourself, is this, is this a pro-war movie... Or an anti-war movie? Is this uh, jingoistic and nationalistic or not? And interestingly, how do you know since nobody says anything? How do you know what the filmmaker is saying even though nobody says anything? So... Anyone feel like enlisting? <laughs> so what is the filmmaker saying? How is he saying it? And uh, hopefully those three categories will be uh, useful in working that out. <coughs> and the, uh, the little questions that I've put there, the yellow ones particularly. So, I'm assuming we would not describe this as a propaganda film for the army. <laughs> I think we probably picked that one up. It is an anti-war film. Um, one of the classics of the genre. Um, well worth looking at if you've not before. Uh, very, very moving. And uh, once you get past the, the old-fashioned technology... The fact that the, some of the moving camera shots are a bit unsteady because they haven't invented steady cam yet. But, you know, good grief, the director has probably just invented the moving camera shot that does that, you know, um, for the first time. Uh, it is still very powerful stuff. So, uh, I want to start uh, reflecting uh, back what the filmmaker is, is saying to us and how he is using the techniques at his disposal to, to say that. I think he's very much focused on the death of the soldiers and yeah. trying to make you empathise with them. Mm -hmm. Very repetitive, very much focused on that with the, the Germans. Um, yeah, okay, so there's a, a, an attempt to get us to empathise with the soldiers on one particular side? No. Oh, no. Both sides. Both sides. Mm -hmm. film doesn't take sides at all. No. Film doesn't take sides. It's, it's, 
from the trench German side rather than the Yes. So, so, how, so what is it the filmmaker does to, to let us know that he's not taking sides even though we see everything from the point of view of the German side? See the reality of the man seeing people blown up in front of him. Mm. There's a common humanity. Right. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I saw you. I saw you miming the the moment yeah. where one of the lead characters that we're following puts his head in his hand briefly. Yeah. Uh, I think that's a hugely significant tip off the director's giving us to, to the emotion of the scene. That sort of good, you know, good grief. What are we doing? Moment. You know, what are we doing? I've got to kill all these people because they're trying to kill me. <laughs> but why are we doing this? You know, um, yeah. Uh, I'm the guy behind the machine gun, though, was mm. totally unemotional, <coughs> wasn't it? It was almost like it was one with machine. Yeah. yeah. That, well, yeah, the sort of mechanisation of war. Yeah. And just as in Metropolis, you had the sort of mechanised people yeah. with the mechanisation. Um, maybe there's a sense of that, or maybe he was a bad actor, and it's difficult to, <laughs> you know, <laughs> maybe that was just an extra, you'd have to watch the film to find out. As I say, these things are not always easy to, to decide, not, certainly not off just one, you know, one brief clip from a film. But, um, the element of that really is him being focused, mm. because he was the one actually controlling the gun mm. that was the thing between... Him and the blokes I yeah. him yeah. Death, yeah. I mean, if he stops shooting, yes. the three of them could be dead. Yeah. Before them, that little group. Yeah. So I mean, he, in a sense, he was focused on the job he had to yeah. do. Yeah. He, wouldn't he have to? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So there's a sense in which the, the filmmaker is kind of letting us empathise with the fact that were I in that situation, I'd be doing exactly what they, they're doing. <laughs> wouldn't I? Would I? It raises those questions, you know. Okay, maybe you say, well, I wouldn't get in that situation, but it's like we're empathising, and there's something being said about the sort of dehumanising effect of war on everyone who takes part. It's not, as you say, it's not an us and them. It's not a, yay, we've killed the bad guys. There's no heroism. Kind of, there's no heroism. Yeah. yeah. It's just a. Yeah. Yeah. Was it reinforced by the gun noise? The yeah. Music? So with yeah. films, you often get this. Yeah. Yes. Music. Yes, it was just the battle noises. But you're left just with the gun noise and this kind of. Oh, yeah. Sweet. Yeah. And you mentioned about the, the repetitive nature of it showing. Did you notice as well that that repetition sped up as the scene went on? So we got shorter and shorter clips bouncing backwards and forwards between the two sides as they came together. So the, the scene sort of built to an emotional climax, cutting between the, the, the two perspectives. Yeah. He always said that it shows it as it really is. Because I think yeah. before, you hear a lot of lies. 
It gives you because going back to the music thing, you can mm. persuade it either way. But the fact is, it's presented to you as is. Mm. You make your own mind up about it. Yeah, so there's more of a sort of documentary kind of feeling to it. Um, just a sort of, we get those sort of overview, camera in the sky kind of shots. This is what's happening to them, this is what's happening to them, this is what's happening. Yeah. This is what they're doing to each other. <laughs> shells to machine guns to bayonets, really. Yes, yeah. As they get closer, you know, it gets, of course, more personal. And, um, I mean, there's a very affecting scene late, late in, in the film where one of them, uh, one of our guys takes shelter in a, in a shell hole. Just our guys, just <laughs> which side you're on. Yeah, our guys. <laughs> the guys that we're following in throughout the film <laughs> with, uh, with a chap from the other side who is wounded and, and dies and the, the sort of interaction between them and, and, um, bringing it down to a, a one-on-one level from that sort of very... I heard some, someone was talking over here about sort of how um, kind of expansive the, the, the scale of the scene. It was, you know, this is filmmaking on a grand scale uh, kind of thing. And then it comes down to two guys in a, in a foxhole um, realising their common humanity even though they're from different sides of the, of the war. Yeah. Well, I think um, I'm going to skip uh, over those, and the clock is moving on, so we'll uh, have our break there and come back to uh, Monsters! <laughs> <laughs> After our tea break. Thank you very much. <laughs>